0: You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast for more audio content please refer to our website this is baptistchurch.com singing that song I thought about Jesus when a woman was brought to him in adultery and those people were ready to stone her and Jesus sat there writing in the dust and finally looked at them and said, ye without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible said from the oldest to the youngest, they all begin to leave. And um, I always picture Jesus in that really tender moment as they're all gone, looking at this woman who has just been drugged through the streets and made a mockery out of. She could have been completely naked. And I believe in that moment that he looked at her and he said, Where are your accusers. And she said, Lord, there are none. And uh, he said these words, he said, neither do I condemn thee. And about the time she was standing up, he smiled and said, Now go and sin no more. And, uh, you know, we have a loving Savior. And no matter what your burden, no matter what your difficulty is today, no matter where you are, He not only knows your burden, he tells you to bring it to him. Leave it with him. He says, come unto me, all you that are burdened, heavy laden. And he said, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. uh, And uh, you know, the Lord loves you this morning. I want you to know that. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. What beautiful words, what beautiful songs. Just a reminder of once again that One day when we get home and we walk into heaven, you'll be the first one to greet us. You'll smile. You'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. For many of us who have spent our life and sometimes are tired, we'll just collapse in your arms. And in that moment, we'll just be totally at rest. Then we'll see people that have gone on ahead of us, Lord. This week I lost my preacher friend, my mentor, Brother Ron Herod, Dr. Ron Herod. I quoted him just a few weeks ago, dear precious friend who's now in heaven. I pray, dear Lord, that that I can live a life that, dear Lord, will bring you honor and glory. And I pray, dear Lord, now as we look to your word, that, Lord, you'd open up our hearts, make us receptive. This is a painful sermon today. Lord, it's going to be gut-wrenching. Why we can't love? What's the problem so often when we try to love others? So, Lord, make our hearts receptive, dear Lord. Cleanse me, forgive me. Let me be a tool in your hand, dear Lord, a vessel. And, Lord, we thank you for the worship that we've had and you inhabit the praises of your people. So we praise you because you're here. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing. And I know Children's Church now is going to be following our trusted leader there, uh, Reggie. Brother Reggie. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and I've titled this message today, Splinters and Beams, Splinters and Beams, and why it is so hard to love, why it's so hard for us to love. And so we uh, pray for these kids as they make their way out, I want to uh, thank the Lord for the leadership. You know, why is this so difficult to love? I, I told you last week, it'd be interesting to have a love meter something out there in the foyer that when you and I walked in that we could grab hold of like you see in some of these places I told you Sheila and I in a in a place where we were in a restaurant had this love meter that it had burning hot and red hot and down at the bottom cold fish so we put our money in I held it it said red hot she put her money in it said cold fish we looked at each other and laughed said well we ought to balance each other out you know but Wouldn't it be interesting if you and I had a spiritual, biblically defined uh, love meter that we could periodically just gauge how we're doing when it comes to love? You know, we'll ask ask some hard questions. Are you a loving person? Would people define you as as a loving person? Are you a forgiving person? Are you the kind of person that you just find it—you kind of find it difficult to hang on to grudges. You know, you—you're uh, the kind of person you just—you just, uh, you, you just forgive. Or, or number three, do you hold on to grudges? Uh, you don't let go of things. You—you you, you find it difficult to love people, to trust people, uh, because you've been hurt. Number four, do you block people off? Do you compartmentalize people? Uh, do you find yourself trying to figure out what label they have so you can decide whether you're going to love them or not? If they're, uh, if they're a Democrat, if they're a Republican, if they're pro-Trump, anti-Trump, if pro-Kavanaugh, anti-Kavanaugh, they're pro-Obama, anti-Obama, they're pro-whatever uh, it may be, you, you find yourself wanting to put people into some kind of compartment so you can decide whether you're going to love them or not. You know, we said, do you love those that you consider to be an enemy? Who's your hard to love list? Who's on that list? Who is kind of a person that you find it very, very difficult to love them? And we said this. The Bible says you're to love your enemy. And you may say, you know, I have a hard time loving some people. I have a hard time loving this person. Jesus said, I know that. That's why I brought them into your life. Because you're going to need me to love them. And Jesus could say to you and I, because I have sometimes, it, it hurts me to love you. And the Bible says, 1 John, God is love. So we talked about some, some hard questions. We talked about some of the fallacies. You know, love does not mean that I agree with you. You can love somebody and not agree with them. Love does not mean I accept your lifestyle. Sometimes uh, people are living a lifestyle that you cannot accept, that you know is biblically wrong, but you can still love them. Number three, and this is a hard one, love does not mean I can fellowship with you. Sometimes we have to break fellowship with people. We can love them, but we do not agree with where they are right now and we cannot fellowship with them. So, love is, is a very, very difficult issue in our lives. The Bible says God is love. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's love should be dwelling in us. But often it's hard for you and I to love. Now, you know, um, so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And Paul begins here by writing to a church that has a lot of difficulties. This, listen, everybody look this way. This is a church that was pagan and carnal from the word go. Uh, I was telling our men earlier, we were talking out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, they got drunk at the Lord's Supper. The church social, they got drunk. Uh, they had a man that was a member of the church that was living and sleeping with his stepmother, an incestuous relationship. Uh, they were dragging each other to court, suing each other in a court of law, rather than their, handling their conflicts within the setting of the church. This was a church with deep moral and ethical issues. And so Paul, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, begins to speak to them, and he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am resounding gong, or clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith that I can move a mountain but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Let's say those three words. Love never fails. That's a promise of Scripture. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now verse 11 is where we'll focus today. When I was a child, I I talked like a child. And love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. You know, first of all, I if if there's a central thesis to this sermon, and it's sad because a lot of times God will put something on your heart and you'll hate to see kind of a low crowd. You know, it just weighs on you as a pastor. Because this is a sermon that is so much needed in our day. We don't know how to love. We, our, our love is very conditional. It's, it has a lot of prerequisites. And if people don't fit our little narrow definition of what we believe love is in a relationship, then we're quick to break it off and to start another relationship. So we, we have difficulty. But 1 Corinthians Chapter 13 is considered by many to be the definition of love. In fact, most would consider it to be a masterpiece of of literary work that even among secular authors, even among non-believers, they find themselves drawn to this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you're kind of reading along here, you know. You're, You're reading this, and I don't know about you, but let me ask you a question are you convicted as you as you're hearing me read that chapter are you convicted i i am love is not easily angered I, I mean you know you get on the highway and you get frustrated and angered somebody cuts you off pulls over in front of you and, and and you find you've got a fuse about that long and all of a sudden you ignite and explode in a moment of anger you know love is uh, love is not easily angered it, it, macrothumia is the Greek word for patience, and it means a long fuse. Macrothumia, we get our word for thermos. Macro means long, and it means that you and I as Christians have a very long fuse. It takes a lot to get us angry. But when I read this, uh, love keeps no record of wrong. but we've got notes in our phone that actually tell us us exactly what somebody did to us and why we can't forgive them. A lot of times we try to justify our inability to love people because of whatever tag or tribe they're a part of. And so when I read this, it kind of convicts me. And then when I get to verse 11, and I've been really meditating for several weeks on 1 Corinthians, I I sat here one day in here. I came in here to pray, and I read the entire book of 1 Corinthians. I just felt drawn to it. But when I come to chapter 13, and I'm reading down through there, and all of a sudden I hit this roadblock, and it's verse 11. You see it? Paul's been defining love, talking about love. And then all of a sudden, it's as if it's almost out of place. It's as if it's kind of a strange twist or turn. Paul says in verse 11, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. He uses a word there in the Greek, katageo. Katageo Katageo means I abolish or I put some behaviors behind me anymore. Everybody listen and look this way. What Paul is saying is the problem with you and I and the reason that we cannot love is because we revert to the way we behaved when we were children. And he says, Paul says, you're going to have to kategeo, you're going to have to abolish, you're going to have to cut away, you're going to have to put away some behaviors that are childish, immature, spiritually immature, but they're just plain childish, and they keep you and I from loving each other. Paul said, you've got to put those away. So I I, I took that. David Siemens, who wrote a book called Doing Away with Childish Things... He made this statement. He said, you can't find this kind of love. In other words, what Paul describes in the early part of chapter 13, this agape in the Greek, this sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love. He said, you can't find this kind of love and spiritual maturity unless verse 11 is put into place. Now, let me tell you the problem in this nation. You know, we can... We can all brag about how much we love JFK, but let me, tell you, let me tell you what JFK said and I heard him. I remember when JFK was shot and killed. I was in the second grade in Miss Walter's class the announcement came on could we have your attention please at riverview high at riverview elementary school on the indian river my dad was a nasa with was working as an engineer with nasa we were in the middle of the moon race because of this president and a, and an announcement came on that said this the president of the united states has been shot and killed and in that moment, it shook my little seven-year-old mind. I never forgot it. I remember walking in. You weren't Republican and Democrat in those days. We weren't, we weren't piddling around with partisan politics, tribalism like we have today. I walked into a Republican home. My mom and dad had voted for Barry Goldwater. Hillary worked for Barry Goldwater's campaign, Hillary Clinton. I walked into that home and there on the news was the death of John F. Kennedy and I watched my mom, a Republican who did not vote for him, weep like a baby. Her whole world altered. My dad wept too. You know what Kennedy said? He said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's not an empty slogan of a political platform he was saying to America he was saying rise above this tribalism this partisan politics and and be the people that God has called us to be and 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 begin to ask the hard question not what my country can do for me but what I can do for my country but you see we live in a day of childish behaviors uh people and that's us a lot of times that seeps into the church I was, in, I was in a business this past week and a man came into this business and uh, he wanted a haircut. And he said, hey, anybody got that? Now, everybody had somebody in the chair. The guy cut my hair. I was the fourth man that I knew that he had cut. I'd sat there for three other people who'd got their hair cut. So I knew I was the fourth one. So he said, anybody cut my hair? And he plopped down there and waited like he was the king of Sheba. Hope he's not listening to this message. May do him some good. And uh, when the guy cut my hair finished, uh, I said, hey, let me take you to lunch. And, and, or I said, at least take a smoke break. And you don't hear a preacher say that very often, but I told him, go ahead and take a smoke break. And uh, you can catch this. I'll wait around while you catch this other guy. So we went out to take a smoke break, and the guy realized who I was, talked to me for a minute, and then he left and drove off. He was mad because some, everybody didn't stop and cut his hair. He didn't realize that the man he was asking to cut his hair had cut at least four heads of hair and just wanted to stop for a minute and get his composure and take a break for a moment. You see, that's the way we are today in America. And that often, that mentality, that childishness is sometimes in the church. It's about me. It's, uh, and, and if I'm not happy, then I leave. So when David Seaman wrote this, he said, he made this statement. He said, I stumbled on this subject. He said, but I hit a raw nerve that I could not believe the response. And he found himself drawn to the 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And these words were, Paul said, in the greatest chapter on love, he said, you're going to have to put away the childish things. A guy by the name of you, Misseldon... He wrote a book called Your Inner Child of the Past. Listen to what he said. He said, Usually in the most intimate personal relationships and places, we let the child that is living in us out. And if we don't voluntarily let them out, they call, they, it will come out, the child will come out involuntarily. I, when I read that, I thought about the Apostle Paul. What Paul was saying is that often in you and I, there is a level of spiritual immaturity or there's a childness in us that often is how we've been raised, has affected how we love and our ability to love. You know, when I do premarital counseling, When I do premarital counseling, I'm trying to get two people to be honest with each other, to to allow their idiosyncrasies, their behaviors, their attitudes, their dispositions. Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is get the inner child to come out. Because sometimes a woman sitting there has a Nellie Olson living inside of her. Now, if you're not a Little House on the Prairie fan, you won't know who she is. Some, Some guys have a Dennis the Menace. Some people have living within them some deep, dark personality quirk or problem or difficulty. And what you're trying to do as a pastor in premarital counseling, you're trying to get that inner child, that real person, to come out so that you can allow the other person to see who they really are. And you may say, well, that's not fair. It's a lot better to have it out in premarital counseling than it is after they get married. Because the common statement that is made by so many people, if I had known that about you, I would have never married you. In fact, I, in fact, I, I coax that individual out, and it can be really ugly. I've seen premarital counseling where we ne- I, never, I never didn't have to worry about the ceremony. Because it was over with. People saw behaviors and attitudes and dispositions that they never expected to come out of another individual. Why is this important? Because you can't help somebody that's locked away. What Paul is saying is that every person in this room has been shaped and molded in those early developmental years by your parents, by authority figures, by life itself. It has created what is inside of you. It's like an inner child. It's like somebody living in you. And Paul says that has to be dealt with if you're truly going to love anybody. Because the inner child in all of us, I agree, comes out in the most intimate of relationships. What is it? What, we say this all the time. We, you, you know, you, you let your hair down when you're at home. No, you let your real self show. And so this is what Paul was dealing with here. He was saying, listen, there's something. I remember one time I was called back when I was working with an ambulance service. And we were called to the scene where a woman had locked herself into her bedroom and she was going to take her life. She was going to commit suicide. We stood at that door We stood at that closed door. We were weeping and crying Well, her family was weeping. And we were a couple of paramedics. We kept knocking on the door. We were pleading with her through the door. It was a door about like this. We couldn't get her to open the door. We couldn't get her to come out. We couldn't help her until we got her out of the room. She had taken a bottle of pills and she was almost comatose at that moment. And finally, we made the decision. Do you know what we did? We kicked that door down. And by the time we got her and got her in the ambulance, she was comatose. We nearly lost her on the way. Some of us can never truly love until we come to terms with the pain and the hurt that has been inflicted into our life. And a lot of it came years ago and it affects who we are and our ability to love. We fail. Paul's saying that. Paul's saying, listen, you and I are going to love the way God would intend us to love. And we've got to kategeo. We've got to cut away. We've got to abolish. We've got to deal with this inner person within us. And sometimes it is a painful process because we are a broken world today. We are a broken nation. It is. It, it, we, we, we are becoming more and more painful and dis, dysfunctional. And you may say, well, is it my parents' fault? No, sometimes it's their parents' fault. Sometimes it goes back generations. Sometimes it's a generational bent. Sometimes we're dealing with deep sin that has been embedded into our family and into our lives by those who have lived before us. I wrote this down yesterday, a man came up to me, educated, brilliant, and asked this question, well it was two days ago, he said, I've been asked, Teresi's been asked to write some editorials, a friend of ours, a mutual friend, and he said, the first editorial I want to write is about the homeless, and he quoted a psychiatrist, he said, a psychiatrist said that much of the homeless is due, much of the homelessness problem in America is due to mental disorder." He said, what do you think about that? I said, well, I don't know about the psychiatrist. I said, my doctorate's in a different level, but I can, uh, in a different area, but I can tell you this much. In about two decades of dealing with the homeless, I said, it's not just mental disorder. I said, sometimes homeless have been wounded when they were young. Sometimes they've been hurt. Sometimes they're hidden away, tucked away under the bridges, behind buildings, because the reality is, is they are broken by life itself, and they cannot cope. Their biggest problem sometimes is relationships and the inability to build relationships. In other words, they've been hurt. Let me give you an example. I had a friend of mine who uh, was so close to a former president that when he died, a pastor friend, that this president did his eulogy at his, at his, at his graveside. This individual, the wife of this pastor friend of mine, his wife said this when the president, this president, she said, ate at my table for years. He stayed at my home, ate at my table more than he did his own because of his home and the family environment that he was in. This president, his dad died three months as a salesman, his dad died three months before he was born. So he never knew his biological dad. His dad died before he was born. He was taken by his mom to live with his grandparents. He lived with his grandparents while his mom went back to school to get a nursing degree. His mom eventually remarried. She married a tough man. This president said, my stepfather gambled was an alcoholic, and he regularly abused my mom and my half-brother. He said, I intervened many times with threats to myself. You want to guess who he is? Bill Clinton. My dad was... Concerned a while back, and I'll just be honest, he was concerned about the direction of the country and so many issues. And He laughed and he said, well, I guess Hillary will be our next president. He said, that worries me. I smiled and said, Dad, don't worry. Bill will be back in the White House. Most people like Bill Clinton, but Bill Clinton is a broken man. Some people might prematurely judge the former president and look at him a certain way based on some of the behavior that he's exemplified at times, but he's a broken man. And we realize that within him is a child that's been wounded and been hurt. Paul knew that apart from katageo, from the abolishing or putting away of the child, coming to terms with the child, whatever that may mean, that we never truly can love. You know, you see some parents who, who spoil their children. They just spoil them. Let me tell you, I wrote this down. When you spoil your child, you literally, you literally empower what God will have to one day break in order to get them to the point that they can be lovable and they can love. In fact, you empower what God will have to break and what will alienate your child when they're grown from real relationships. Listen to this. One writer said, unless we face ourselves, get alone with God, allow His Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ, to examine us and give us the truth about ourselves and why we are the way we are and why we have such difficulty in relating to the people that are around us in the the most intimate family dynamics, or our closest and dearest friends, he said it's because we have never had a verse 11 experience and we will never love or be loved as God intended for us to love. This is what Paul's saying here. Some of you in this room are married to somebody that is severely scarred and wounded. You find it difficult to love them. You find it difficult to, 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 to uh, develop an intimacy and a closeness with them. It's almost as if there's a wall there and you keep trying to get through it and you can't get through it and that person outside of a radical encounter with Jesus Christ probably will never change. The truth of the matter is is that in your life and in my life, There's a scarred, hidden away child that sometimes is living inside of us that has to be dealt with. And sometimes it can be ugly. Why is this kid so bad? Why is verse 11 so hard and it may be deep? Why is verse 11 so critical for you and I to be able to love? Look this way. Everybody listen. Let me be very personal here. When I was six years old, I probably wasn't even that old. My mom was put in a psychiatric ward. I still remember vividly, vividly. I can tell you exactly the clothes. My mom was a beautiful, classy woman. She had red shoes on and a red purse and a long brown coat. She was put in a psychiatric ward, a place for the mentally unstable. It was a time when shock treatments and we were so off the wall with some of the things that we were doing back in those days. I grew up in a home where I longed for my mom to love me, and I grew up in a home. I um, I learned to survive. I learned to make the best out of a bad situation. Some days I would get up early, my sister and I, we would clean the house up and then we would hit the streets and we'd be gone all day. Times I rode my bike in the garage, I'd ride in circles on a rainy day because I couldn't get out. And I grew up like that. Uh, I wasn't a trusting person. Not at all. I didn't trust people. Uh, My wife says after a painful experience in her life that she would never trust a man again. I was the same way, but I didn't trust men or women. I went on. I married Sheila, dealing with the ability to love her and to trust her and all of that pain and hurt and sorrow of my childhood. Always there always a part of who I was and who I am. When I was working on my doctorate, I was in a class with two psychiatrists, a psychologist, the hostage negotiator for Pennsylvania, and a host uh, of the man who had written the, con- the uh, textbook that we were using called Heart Psychology, and a president of a seminary, one of the prominent seminaries. We would sit, and we would develop counseling skills figuring out how to counsel. And we said this, you have to get to the heart of a person before you can help them. And often when you're counseling, it's like peeling an onion, layer after layer after layer. So every student, every doctoral student had to be on the hot seat. They had to be, they had to be on that chair. They had to be uh, in the hot seat. And you had two psychiatrists, hostage negotiator. You had all these people of expertise and they were teaching the students how to counsel, and there came my day. And my day, I was sitting in the hot seat, doctoral seminar. That's what I was doing. Because that's what I always did. Always shook. When I was real little, I used to do my head back and forth like this. I didn't realize what that was until I saw in Romania children they grew up in an orphanage that did that or did this because they were rocking themselves. I cried, shaking. Married, four kids, sitting there like this in the hot seat. Good student, making good grades. So they started. Finally, the man who wrote the textbook, Heart Psychology, They were asking questions and getting to the heart, getting to who I was, who I really am, who I hide. And all of a sudden, at a certain point, he said, we're at his heart. He just stopped. He said, we're at his heart. He said, anybody know why? And uh, everybody just kind of stood there looking, looking at me, trying to figure out what signal was I giving that let them know that I was... That they were at my heart. They were, what, they were at the inner child. They were who I really am. And he all of a sudden smiled. He said, Jeff, let me ask you something. He leaned forward. He said, uh, "His guy, PhDs coming out of his ears, president of a seminary and the writer of, of the textbook. He said, Jeff, let me ask you something. Have you ever not shook? And I looked down and I was perfectly calm. My legs weren't shaking. My hands were still. I felt a peace and a quiet that it was in the very depth of my soul and I began to cry and I just sobbed and cried because in that moment the wounded broken neglected child that longed for a mom to rock them and hold them and love them was finally being recognized I came home told Sheila we wept and cried together God began to do some things in my life I began to learn to love one day I went to my mom and I sat down in her home when she was there by herself I said mom can I talk to you she sat down and I told her that experience and I told her how I felt she began to weep and cry She began to open up, and all of a sudden I saw the child and my mom come out. I began to hear the deep, dark secrets of her own childhood and the woundedness that she had experienced. She not only only asked me to forgive her, I still remember her hands shaking. She not only asked me to forgive her, she told me about her own wounds. It helped me to understand. You know why The Shack was such a popular book? And why I didn't jump on the bandwagon to hate the man who rode it? Because he was writing about his child wounds. And I'm here to tell you today: until there's a cataletheo, until there's a cataletheo, until there's a, an abolishing, a cutting away, coming to terms with where the pain and the hurt of child has affected you and I, we can never truly love the way God intended us to love. And you may say, well, you know, I don't think I have any. That's great. If you don't, that's great. But I think about a little girl. I think about a little girl who one day I was throwing one of my niece up, and I was catching her. And all of a sudden this little girl pulled my pant leg, and she said, don't do that to me. I said, why? I won't drop you. She said, my daddy dropped me. A beautiful childhood experience, taking a child, throwing him up in the air and catching him. This little girl said, "I don't do that to me. My daddy, my daddy dropped me. Let me ask you something. And we're getting ready to pray. In fact, you can go ahead and stand. I don't, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know what may be going on in your life. But I've been pastoring some of you for a very long time. Some of you are, are blessed, sweet, precious people. But I got a feeling in a room like this, there are people in, in this room that have been beat up and scarred by life. Uh, It could be uh, an authority figure. It could be a parent. It may be that you were neglected by a dad or a mom. It may be that you were abused by a dad or a mom. It may be that in the early developmental years that you were just kind of shuffled around between people and you never knew who you were going to be with. And all of that has shaped and molded and made you who you are. And, and, and today you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I am. I'm, I'm scarred. Because see, we tend to love people the way we've been loved. Now let me repeat that. We tend to love people. Some of you in this room. I knew your parents. The reality is, there's some in this room, you, you love the way your mom loves you. You love the way your dad may have loved you. Some of you in this room are scarred and beaten and bruised up and you're in and out of relationships. You can't make anything work. You find yourself repeatedly in conflict with other people. And there are people listening on the website. They, they, they are listening right now. And the reality is until you and I come to a point that we say, Lord, I need you to help me here. Jesus, no, when Moses stood before God, Moses said, God, what's your name? God said, what? He said, I am. I want you to hear me very closely. I want you to listen. And I believe this, and you may say, that's too deep for me. What God was saying, there is no past, there is no future. It's all present tense with I want you to listen closely. Everybody, listen. Some of you in this room had a tough childhood and it's affected the person you are today. It affects your health. It affects your ability in your marriage and your relationships and levels of intimacy. Some of you in this room have been wounded and hurt. Some are listening on the website. You've been wounded and hurt. I, to, I want to share something with you. You have a God that can go back to that child Here. Wrap his arms around that child and bring healing to that child, to that emotion, to that pain, that hurt, and you can feel the effects of that right now. I believe that. God said, I am. He's the present. Everything's in the present tense. Some of you are battling with an addiction. Where do you think that addiction is coming from? that propensity toward drugs and alcohol, toward pornography, much of that. we In our pornography study, what did they say? Every expert says it's due to what? What kind of wound? Father wound. God wants to heal the child in you. God wants to implement Romans eight twenty-eight that says, for all things work together for good to them that love God. God can take the wounded, broken child in you, God can begin to bring healing and God can give you the ability to love. And my friend, we need some people in this world today that aggressively know how to love. Because I don't know where they are today. So let me pray for you. Let me pray for us. And If you're here today after I pray, if God has spoken to your heart, I'm going to be here at the front ledge, you'll be here. If you're here today and you say, you know, Brother Jeff, I want to give my life to Christ. That's the first step. Give your life to Christ. Secondly, you may be here and you need to bring some things and leave them at the altar. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you. And Lord, we thank you and we love you. We pray, dear Lord, that you just uh, do what only you can do. We pray, dear Lord, for the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to be in this room. Lord, I know this has been a deep sermon. Lord, I've made myself vulnerable by sharing, dear Lord, my own heart, my own pain, my own hurt. But Lord, I believe it's for others who may hear right now need to have you, Lord, to go back, to wrap your arms around that broken, shattered, frightened life of a child and to bring a peace and a comfort. I pray, dear Lord, that if there's one here that, Lord, needs to be healed so they can truly love, they need to learn how to trust and love again, then, Lord, may you bring that into their life in this moment. And, Lord, we'll give you the glory, we'll give you the honor for every part of this invitation. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.